Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. So I have a question about masks. This is totally irrelevant, has nothing to do with the message, but it really struck me this morning when I was sitting there singing with my mask on. Were you ever ever singing or, or talking to somebody with a mask on and you realize somebody's breath really stinks? And it has to be yours. (laughs) I took my mask off. It was so bad I couldn't stand it this morning. I don't don't know why, but it was totally irrelevant. But um. so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter four. I invite you to grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever and find that, and um, we'll read it in a couple minutes. I want to ask if you would pray with me, please. Our Father, we are about to engage with you through your written eternal word, and our confidence in you is very firm. But should I stray from truth by mistake or misunderstanding, guard us from any influence that might lead to a house built on sand. Where your truth intersects with our lives, we pray that you will transform us into people who are growing more and more in every way like Christ. And shape us, Father, through your Spirit's presence so that in all ways we live truth in love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know how many of you pay attention to news at all, but uh, right before Easter, Maybe you saw this as well. Right before Easter, I learned that for the first time in American history, that's the way it was presented, for the first time in American history, church membership has dropped below 50%. Anybody else catch that at all? Um, That means that less than half of American citizens are are now members of churches. And that announcement, um, that announcement was, was kind of hard to miss. It was on CNN, Fox News, BBC, Daily Mail, The Hill, Forbes, Gallup. Everybody was reporting on that particular statistics. Now, as is always the case, and I hope you have learned this by now, the media wasn't entirely truthful, um, uh, nor accurate. Um, It turns out that the quote for all of American history is really only the last 60 years. Um, as long as Gallup has been doing this survey. But this is the truth, and here the truth is that for the last 60 years, membership in American churches has hovered around 70%. Around 70% of Americans have been members in Christian churches for the last 60 years or so. And then right around the year 2000, it started to creep down just a little bit, but the drop has been much more steep in the last two or three years. In 2018, it hit 50% for the first time, and in 2020, for the first time in the last 60 years. Uh, membership in American churches dipped below 50% and is right now about 40%, 47%. Oh, I have to tell you, I'm not exactly sweating over this because um, I have been engaged in a church now uh, professionally. I've been engaged in church for, for more than half of those 60 years, and I can tell you 
that church membership means very, very little. About as much as a politician's promise. (laughs) But what this does reveal, what this does reveal is that there is, and there has been, a, a kind of general distancing from churches in America. Uh, Being part of a church is no longer necessary to be part of the mainstream culture in America. And while I'm not an expert on this, and this is probably a whole lot more complicated, this trend, there is one glaring reason why there is this general distancing from the church and our culture, and the reason is people don't trust us anymore. Uh, more and more people think that we really don't do any good. That for the most part, we're just serving ourselves, the institution, rather than serving God and doing good. So I want to ask you, what should you expect from your church? For the last six weeks now, we have been talking about growing up. And if you have any interest in the Christian faith at all, then you should know that our Father expects you and me to to grow up. There's a very simple statement in Ephesians chapter 4. I have repeated it every single week. And that statement says that our Father intends for you and I to grow up in every way to be more like Christ. That is God's goal for us, to grow up. That's God's goal for you. It's God's goal for me. So how should we, the church, be involved in this? What should you expect from your church in the process of growing up? We're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't expect anybody to remember this, but this is where we started this series six weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4 with that theme that we've looked at every week since then in one way or another. Uh, This is where this comes from. But we're going to read the same verses that we read six weeks ago when we started Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 11 and read through verse 15. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. These are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing up in every way more and more like Christ. Now, I am guessing that most of you, um, and if not, that's fine, but my guess is that most of you 
have at one time or another heard somebody in the church talk about the subject of our, quote, our spiritual gifts, that somewhere along the line, you heard that discussed, our spiritual gifts. And what that means is that God's Spirit, and God's Spirit who is present right now, and God's Spirit who is right here with us, that God has given to every single one of us um, a gift, uh, an ability that allows us to contribute to what God is doing in the world. It allows us to contribute to God's business in the world. And biblically speaking, many, many places talk about gifts in the Bible, these spiritual gifts. And biblically speaking, these gifts are things like hospitality and craftsmanship and music and teaching and serving other people and wisdom and mercy. And there are more. Now, I didn't even read this, but in this very chapter, we started in verse 11. All you'd have to do is back up just three sentences to verse, uh, to verse 7. And even in here, Paul talks about this subject of gifts, where Paul said that God's Spirit has given to everyone a special gift, a, a spiritual gift. So you have a gift, and I have a gift. You may have several. You may have a package. I don't know how God's Spirit does this, but you at least have a gift. Now, I think this is really, really important for what we're going to talk about. There's a kind of a shift that happens in verse 11. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 11, it is no longer people who have been given gifts, but it is now people who are gifts. And that's a significant shift. Did you catch that? Verse 11, what I started reading, it's not that you've been given a gift, but in verse 11 it starts by saying that Christ gave gifts to the church and those gifts are people. And then Paul lists four of those people gifts. He says there are the apostles, there are the prophets, there are the evangelists, and, those are the pastor, and there are the pastor teachers. Four types of people who are themselves gifts to the church. Now just as an aside, I know that because of some of the translations you're looking at, and I don't want to mess you up at all, so I'm going to just take a couple of seconds to talk about this. Some of your Bibles, it will appear as if there's a list of five that are mentioned, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But to be honest with you, grammatically speaking, those last two are smushed together, grammar-wise. It's probably one, not two pastors slash teachers. So Paul says there are four types of people, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors slash teachers, who are themselves gifts to the church. Now, those are not the only gifts to the church, but those are the four Paul's talking about, because what Paul is focusing on is what we might call leadership gifts. And he's talking about leadership gifts for a reason that we'll talk about in a second. But here's the thing. If we Bible teachers and if we Bible scholars are honest... When we look at that list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, it is really, really hard for us to know exactly what those four groups of people were doing in the church 2,000 years ago. We just don't know all the details. We don't know how churches were organized. We don't know how these four particular types of people functioned in the church. We don't know the details. And my guess is that that's on purpose. My guess is that God in kind of inspiring scripture, he left that kind of vague on purpose. Because if it was specific, if God gave us specific about how the church was organized 2,000 years ago, my guess is we would be diligent about copying that exact 
leadership model today. And in the last 2,000 years, the church has changed. In the last 2,000 years, the world has changed. You cannot take a leadership structure from A.D. 71 and copy it exactly in A.D. 2021. So we don't have job descriptions for these four types of leaders, for apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers. But we can make a semi-educated guess about what those four groups of people were doing. Apostles, for example, very broadly speaking, apostles were men and women um, who were defining the Christian faith in that first generation of the church. When the church was born in the Jewish context and everybody's trying to figure out what is the church all about, apostles were men and women who knew Jesus they were men and women who, have, who had lived with them. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. So they were able to say to the church as it was forming, they were able to say, this is true about Jesus, and no, 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 this is a myth that's circulating. And they were able to say, this is a true thing that Jesus said, and no, 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 this is a heresy that is circulating. So apostles were people who were able to define the boundaries of the Christian church. Prophets were people who, it seemed like, prophets were people who were able to say, they were able to kind of confront culture and to say, these are the specific social ills that have to be addressed by the church in our culture right now. Evangelists seem to be people who specialized in communicating the good news about Jesus to people who'd never heard it before. And pastors slash teachers seem to be men and women who cared for and who taught in the context of very specific house churches. But honestly, we don't know how all of that was organized. We don't know, for example, how these four specific people, if you went to a, a, just any church a, church, a house church in Philippi, a house church in Thessalonica, we don't know how those four leaders were functioning and how they organized it in any particular church. But here's what we do know. We know that those four people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, we know that they functioned as leaders in the church. And Paul is saying that God has given to the church the gift of leaders. And then, and this is where it really gets important for us, Paul is very specific about the task of leaders, about what these four groups of people are supposed to do. Once he names them, once he says Paul, that God has given to the church gifts of leaders, he's very specific about what they're supposed to do. Verse 12, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do God's work, and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Now, there's more, but just pause for a second. In the church, it is still the leader's job to equip you, to equip all of us to do God's work. Now, there are really two huge things that you need to notice, two huge ideas you need to notice. And I'm going to get to idea number one, kind of through the back door, through a detour. Stick with me. This will make sense. Anybody here like reading history at all? Does anybody like history? Anybody specifically like Civil War history? Okay. For those of you who like Civil War history, um, you may know that in both the North and the South during the Civil War, there was a shortage of volunteer soldiers. Now, it didn't happen right at the beginning. At the beginning, everybody was gung-ho, and there were plenty of soldiers. But as the war progressed, there, there came a time when both the North and the South, there was a shortage of volunteer soldiers. So both sides had to resort to what was called 
conscription. We call it the draft. Anybody here a veteran who was drafted? All right. Anybody here a veteran who signed up so you wouldn't be drafted? Okay. All right. So it, we're familiar with it. We're, that's what it was. In the Civil War, conscription meant that the government would knock on your door and say, lucky sir, you are now a soldier and you have to serve. Now, here's the thing about conscription or the draft. doesn't matter. Wealthy, connected people have always been able to find a way around it. In the Civil War, in both the North and the South, if you were wealthy and you were conscripted, you could legally pay somebody else to be your substitute. Here's the way it happened. If you were conscripted and you were wealthy, you would pay a fee to the government and you would pay a fee to your substitute and he would fight in your place and you didn't have to serve. There's an old lithograph. This is from 1863. I know you can't make out the details, but this is an old lithograph. It shows a picture of what was called the conscription room in New York City in 1863, right smack in the middle of the war. And what's going on here is that men who are being conscripted, there would always be some volunteers, not men who were serving it. They had, there would always be some volunteer substitutes standing around the conscription room. And when a wealthy man was conscripted, he would be able to go to some of those substitutes and pay a fee around $3,000, which was a ton of money. Only wealthy people did it. And you could, you could pay someone to serve for you. And that's a picture of it. Now, this is a picture of an American church doing the exact same thing. I thought that was funny. You obviously don't... <laughs> I am just funning with you. Um, that's actually insulting to all of you who have served and volunteered so faithfully and selflessly and who are living out the work of God in your lives. But, but it is important to note that for a leader of the church to be doing what God wants us to do, our job is to equip all of us to do God's work. It is not the job of the leader to do all of God's work. It's the job of the leader to equip all of us to do God's work. There's a huge difference. Which leads to the idea number two, really important idea that you have to understand it's the leader's job to equip, and that is a wonderful word. That magnificent Greek word for equip means to have all you need for a specific purpose. That's what the word equip means, to have all you need for a specific purpose. So you kind of, you're following the logic here? According to Paul, the work of leaders in the church is to be giving you all you need for a specific purpose. Now, what's the purpose? Well, Paul said, 
to do the work of God and build up the church. Make sense so far? So, what should you expect from your church? You should expect that your leaders are giving to you all you need to do the work of God. And anything less than that means we leaders are not doing our job. Now, there's another really important idea here, and you have to notice this so that you can get what Paul's saying. Paul said in this logic, this idea of logic that God has given gifts to the church to equip you, all of us, to do the work of the church. The next important idea is verse 13 when Paul says, now this will continue until we come to such unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Now, do not miss the sequence, the order in which Paul is talking about how things happen here. He said, this will continue. What will continue? Well, leaders equipping the church to do the work of God. That will continue, Paul said, until we grow up and mature. Now, quick reminder, just a real quick detour. The definition of maturity is what we've looked at for weeks. It's in verse 15. The definition of what I just said is that in every way, we will grow more and more like Christ. That's maturity, growing up to be like Christ. But do not overlook the obvious, the sequence. We do not mature and then start doing God's work. That's not the sequence. And it's not the sequence on purpose. We do the work of God, and along the way, God matures us. That's the order. That's the way it works. If you want to grow, and God is expecting you to want to grow, then you start doing what God wants, and the maturing happens along the way. It does not happen the opposite way. There will simply be no mature people who exist to do the work if we wait to do the work until we mature. It's like a business who is advertising for an entry-level position but then says we want five years of experience. It doesn't work that way. Our growing up happens as we do the work of God. Now, let's go back to that idea of equipping for a minute. What is it that leaders need to be giving you if we're equipping you? How do we equip you? Well, if we are equipping you, giving you everything you need to to accomplish a specific purpose, that means we're doing things like, number one, giving you knowledge. Obviously, there are things you have to know to do the work of God. Who is God? Who's Jesus? 
Who is God's spirit? And how does God's spirit do his work in us? What is the kingdom of God like? What's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of, of this world? All kinds of knowledge, things we have to know to be equipped. We have to also be giving you skills if we're equipping you. There are things that you and I have to be taught how to do. How do we talk to other people about our faith? How do we raise kids who arrive at a place where they're given opportunities to know how to accept Jesus Christ? How do we deal with issues like anger and sex and lust and greed? All kinds of skills we're meant to be given. And we have to be teaching you things like ethics. We have to be taught how do Christians behave? How do we live in this world? And leaders, if we're going to equip you, we have to be giving you opportunities for meaningful, significant relationships because followers of Jesus absolutely, positively must live in connection with each other. It's the only way. It's simply assumed in the Bible that our faith will be lived in community. The word church is a plural word. It has to be a plural word. So leaders have to provide opportunities for connections. No leader can connect you. We can't do that. You have to make connections happen, but we can provide the opportunities for connections. And there's more, of course. But those are the things that leaders have to be doing to equip you to do God's work. So what should you expect from your church? You should expect that you are being given the opportunity to be equipped, being given knowledge, being given skills, being given ethics, being given opportunities to connect in relationships and more. That's what you should expect from your church. And when Jesus was here, this is exactly what Jesus called discipleship. This is it exactly. If you looked at Jesus' investment in his disciples, Jesus spent a couple years doing exactly this with a group of men and women. He taught them knowledge. He taught them skills. He taught them ethics. He gave them opportunities to connect in meaningful relationships. And then as Jesus was, as he was leaving, he commissioned his disciples. In Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples, he said, now, you go make more of you. That was his commission. You go make more of you. Make disciples. That's how you and I have been commissioned by Jesus, to make disciples. That's what you should expect from your church. Now, since we are talking about becoming more like Jesus in every way, I want to show you something about how Jesus interacted with his world in the process of making disciples. This is important for you and I when it comes to how do we do this. When Jesus was here in person, Jesus interacted basically with four different groups of people. One group of people were people to whom Jesus was simply unknown. They never heard of him. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus was often interacting with people who had never heard of him. 
Sometimes he actually healed people who had never heard of him. There's a great story in John chapter 9, a wonderful story about a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him. Happened to be the Sabbath. The Pharisees caught up with that man who was born blind who was healed, and the Pharisees, pretty ballistically upset that he'd been healed on the Sabbath, they asked this man, who healed you on the Sabbath? And the man said, I don't know. It's the guy that you guys are calling Jesus, but I don't know. Now later, Jesus actually caught up with that man because obviously Jesus' goal is to always have people know who he is, to not leave them in the condition of not knowing who he was. But that's one category of people who existed in Jesus' day. The second category of people that Jesus was interacting with were people who either rejected him or simply were uninterested in him. Plenty of stories, and you've read them, plenty of stories about people who rejected Jesus or who heard him and just weren't interested. And interestingly, the Bible has two or three encounters where Jesus looked at those people who had said no or who were uninterested, and it broke his heart. And on one occasion, he wept over people who had rejected him. But that's the second group of people. The third group of people Jesus was interacting with all the time were what I'm calling curious believers. You could call them the crowd. Very often in the Bible, they're called the crowd. These were people who crowded around Jesus by the thousands on hillsides. These are people who packed houses when Jesus was there. People who followed him around the lakes trying to figure out, who is this man? These were people who the Gospels tell us when they listened to him teach, the people who said, we have never heard anybody teach like this man. These are the people, when Jesus asked his, his disciples, when Jesus asked the 12, who do people say that I am? This is the people Jesus was asking about. Now, some of these people in this crowd, curious believers, some of these people actually called themselves disciples because they believed, they came to believe that Jesus was a man who came from God. And they believed that. And they called themselves disciples of this rabbi. But interestingly, you get to a place, for example, in John chapter 6, where Jesus started saying some very hard truths. And the crowd left. They had assented to certain ideas. They just didn't trust him. And the crowd left. The fourth group of people that Jesus interacted with were his disciples, the students of Jesus. These were men and women who were growing up in every way to be more and more like Christ. And when Jesus' numbers started to dwindle in John 6, for example, when Jesus' followers dropped below 50%, Jesus went to this group of disciples and he said, hey, they've left. So what about you? Are you leaving too? And are the things that I'm saying too hard for you? And Peter answered and said, I don't know where else we would go. You alone have the words of life. We've left everything to follow you. And they had. Now, these four groups of people exist to this day. The world hasn't changed in this regard at all. It's still the exact same world. 
And when Jesus said to his followers, when he commissioned them, when he gave them the Great Commission, and when he said to his disciples, you go into all the world, these are the four groups of people that he was talking about. You go into all the world and you make from these four groups, you make more of you, you make more disciples. What he still intends for us to do is to be inviting and to be challenging everybody to move into that center circle, which is why I made the dotted lines, because people aren't stuck in any of those categories. Jesus is always wanting us to move across the line and move towards the center. That's his goal. And if you think about it, if you ponder this, if you think about the gifted leaders that Christ has given to the church, apostles, evangelists, prophets, teacher, pastors, those are exactly the kind of gifted leaders that the church needs to accomplish this. Leaders, for example, who are called and who are themselves equipped to go to people who have never heard of Jesus or to people who are uninterested and to say, let me tell you about who Jesus is. And the leaders who are equipped to define the faith and say, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And leaders who can challenge the curious, those people in the crowd, and say to them, belief isn't just about mental assent to some ideas, saying yes to ideas about God. Belief is following in your lives. And leaders who are able to care for and teach followers who are then growing in every way to be more like Jesus. What Jesus has given to the church is men and women who are equipped to do exactly that. But I want to show you something about how Jesus interacted with these groups. This is important for us. Uh, you know, um, I've already mentioned it, you know that there are many, many times, many stories where Jesus is surrounded by those crowds, uh, the curious believers. Sometimes the crowds are numbered, 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. One time there were so many crowds pushing against Jesus that he actually got to the edge of the lake and had to step in a boat so that he could still have room to teach. Many, many crowds. And if you and I were watching those crowds, if we were there, if we were there watching that, there is no way that you and I would be able to tell the difference between a curious person and a disciple. We wouldn't know. We couldn't tell the difference. But there's a very consistent pattern that Jesus did when he was speaking to the crowds. This is important. We miss this most of the time. In Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to thousands of people. People came from miles around to hear Jesus, and he healed people. They came because they needed healing. They wanted to act, interact with Jesus, and Jesus did. He interacted with everybody. But then Jesus did a very curious thing. Every time Jesus is teaching to the crowd, there's this statement. And then he turned to his disciples and he began to teach them. Do you hear that? It's significant. He deeply loves the people who are in the crowd. He acts with compassion towards them. But when he gets to teaching, he lets the crowd listen in, but he teaches his followers because he understands you do not make disciples from the crowd. 
you don't make disciples from the crowd, the curious believers. Disciples are made from those who are following. And he does that all the time. In Luke chapter 6, another story says this, the disciples stood with Jesus surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem, from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he began to teach. Then the equipping begins. Jesus has this magnificent compassion for the crowds, for broken people, but his goal is to make disciples. So he lets the crowd listen in as Jesus talks to his disciples about what life is like in the kingdom of God. And obviously, obviously Jesus hopes that from that crowd of curious that they will find this life in the kingdom of God so compelling and so truthful that they will say, I want in. If that's what the kingdom of God is like, then I want in. That's why Jesus taught the way he taught, always using parables and stories, the Bible says. Sometimes when we read that, we think, well, Jesus was telling parables and telling stories to make it simple so that everybody could understand. That's what we think. But that's not what Jesus himself said. Matthew chapter 13, his disciples came to Jesus. Says, How many times do you read a story where Jesus told a parable and the disciples are left scratching their heads? I don't get what he's saying. They would say when they go to Jesus, Jesus, tell us, we don't get it. So the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 and said, Jesus, why are you always teaching in parables when you talk to people? And Jesus said this, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they'll have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be lost. This is why I teach in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen. Hearing and listening are two very different things, as every wife and mother understands, right? A certain husband, a certain teenager can be standing right in front of you watching your lips move. But there's a disconnect between an ear and a brain. Jesus does not want a population of followers who hear. He wants followers who listen. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be growing to be growing in every way more like Christ. That's why Jesus was constantly challenging the curious, the crowd, those believers who thought, well, I agree with what he's saying. I assent to it. That's why Jesus was always challenging them, saying things like, you know, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who actually do the will of the Father enter the kingdom. Or another time when he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I ask you to do? 
This is what you should expect from your church. A church's business is to make more disciples, followers of Jesus Christ who are growing in every way to be more like Christ. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing if the world around us is attracted to Jesus because of our lives. I think in the same way that Jesus was compelling, I think it would be awesome if the world found his church compelling and were attracted to what was going on here. It would be a wonderful thing to have people all around us who were curious, part of the crowd. But like Jesus, a great crowd of curious is not the goal. It's not the goal to attract the crowd of curious. To make disciples is the goal. People who are actually growing in every way more like Christ. So here's my challenge to every single one of us. Where are you in this little diagram? Where are you? Jesus calls us and invites us to follow him. He wants to make disciples. So I'm asking you to do an honest assessment. Where am I? Now, to help you do this, I'm going to ask you a question that I had to answer a few weeks ago. In many ways, it's the question that inspired this series of sermons. I was reading a book and came across a paragraph where I was challenged to imagine standing in front of Jesus and have to answer this question. So I'm going to challenge you to answer this question yourself too, to help you know where you are. Imagine standing in front of Jesus, facing him, and you actually have to answer this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I ask you to do? Spend some time with that question this week and answer it. When I read that question and imagined answering it, it made me squirm, made me feel uncomfortable. But answer it, I did. And this is exactly what you should expect from your church. So let's pray. God, I pray that you would be always calling us to be people who are growing in every way more and more like Christ. I thank you, God, for doing that. I thank you, God, for even in my own life, how you have at times made me squirm and challenged me. Pray, God, that you'd be doing that in all of our lives, helping us to know where we are in relation to what you want us to be. And I pray, God, that through your spirit that you would be calling all of us to follow Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.